Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Wednesday, December 12th. I'm Sophie Cases. Today, we're talking about how white supremacism may actually rewire someone's brain on a physical level. As a reporter on the alt-right, Vice writer Ali Conti has spent a lot of time digging into Reddit and 4chan white supremacist content. And over the course of her journalism, she's learned about the many reasons why people join these extremist groups. Camaraderie and finding belonging being two major ones. But in her most recent story for Vice magazine, she's exploring a new idea that possibly belonging to white supremacist groups may actually affect and rewire your brain. And there's good reason to believe that even if you choose to leave an extremist group, the worldview isn't so easy to shake. I sat down with Ali to learn more. So, Ali, when you first set out to write this piece, it was going to be a different piece. It was going to be all about a man named Dave and Dave's dad. And while... That didn't totally end up panning out. You did include some of Dave's story. And I was wondering if you could tell us sort of about Dave and what interested you so much about his story in the first place. Sure. So I found Dave posting on a Ask Me Anything Reddit thread. Um, the person hosting that Ask Me Anything was a former Klansman. And Dave asked him for advice for this problem that he'd been trying to deal with for decades, which was that his dad had been in and out of the Klan, and he couldn't seem to ultimately commit to, you know, ceasing his involvement in that group. And Dave loved his father, desperately wanted to help him, but was starting to wonder, you know, after all of these relapses, for lack of a better word, if this was kind of a futile cause. What I found striking about Dave and his father's story is that, you know, when Dave was relaying it to me, he was using a lot of terminology that was really familiar to me, you know, just it sounded like an addiction narrative. You know, it sounded like he was going through relapses, and it just seemed to really graft onto that idea, which I could already understand, you know, from popular culture. And I got lucky by finding out that they were doing a study about exactly this right around the time I was working on the story. You know, there were some researchers at the University of Nebraska who were hooking up people to machines and showing them images of swastikas and other, you know, imagery that we would associate with extremism to kind of see how their micro-emotions would change. And micro-emotions are just feelings that you have before you can consciously react. So even if they've disavowed this philosophy, this would show that oftentimes how their actual mind was reacting would be in contradiction to, you know, what they wanted to feel when they would see these things. So when the story sort of shifted and you didn't end up getting to sort of center the piece around Dave and his father, you ended up going to the University of Nebraska and like doing these tests yourself, even though you initially wanted Dave's dad to be the one in the seat with the monitors and all of that. 
Can you tell us about the experience of being tested for your responses and reactions to these images and, you know, hate symbols and white supremacist propaganda? The reason I went is because I I thought I would make an okay proxy. I spend a lot of time reading, you know, 4chan and Reddit um, as part of my job. So I've often wondered if this was like rotting my brain in some way and been a bit worried about it. So I jumped at the chance of actually going to have researchers tell me if that was true or not. And it was very nerve-wracking, as you might imagine, especially because I was going to be printing the results in a, a magazine that was publicly available for anyone to read. You know, sitting and waiting for people to tell you essentially if you're a racist is uh, not a very pleasant experience, but thankfully I seem to have passed that test. So part of your story covered this idea that there's been a rise in membership in extremist groups alongside a decline in social group membership, like, you know, these other kinds of like social groups where people get together and interact in person with each other. So basically, people are more isolated than before, partly because of this, partly because of the internet. And you're seeing this kind of correlation there. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of the role that isolation and alienation and seeking belonging plays in hate group membership? Sure, this is a tough one because I certainly don't want to suggest that because fewer moms are joining the PTA that, you know, it's perfectly justified that people join their local KKK chapter. But I do think that there is something to the camaraderie that these groups provide and that's lacking in kind of traditional social institutions. Um, That was certainly the case with Dave's father. Part of the reason that he kept kind of going back to those people, even though he had some pretty significant ideological differences from them is that those were the people who accepted him, and those were the people that he could be friends with in this small town. And it's also very difficult once you join those groups and you've abandoned your family and friends to disavow the only people who accepted you after the fact and then try to go back to those family and friends. Oftentimes you're stuck with those people in those hate groups after you've made that step. Yeah, and you've written a lot about this, this sense of camaraderie and belonging being one of the reasons why people join and also stay with extremist groups. But this article was a little different. You're sort of saying it might not just be a social problem. This extremism might actually rewire your brain on a physical level. The debate over whether or not, you know, racism is a sort of intractable mental issue or if it's a social phenomenon has been going on since basically the end of World War II. But this is the first actual, as far as I know, scientific study on the brain that will hopefully provide some objective answers to this question that's been going on since the 1940s. So you talked about a study at the University of Nebraska where former white supremacists are having their brain activity monitored, and there was a control group and then a group of white supremacists, and the control group was a small group of white male MMA fighters. So can you kind of go into like what this study was doing and like why is that the control group and what are the results? Sure. So I think the reason for that being the control group is that they wanted to control for like kind of a natural tendency toward aggression um, and find out if, you know, people behave aggressively when they see certain images apart from, you know, just kind of their natural condition, if, if they're actually psychologically more primed to feeling aggressive towards specific images as opposed to just all around. Basically, so all these people that 
are in the non-control group are people who were former white supremacists that one of the researchers, Pete Simi, had been following around for years. You know, they, they've since expressed that they, they feel very conflicted about their past lives, and they sometimes find themselves getting stuck in, in thought patterns that they have, like, intellectually disavowed. But they, they feel that their emotions belie that they still kind of deeply believe this stuff, even if they don't want to. So this study was meant to kind of see if these people who have said, you know, I disavow my racist past still were fundamentally different than the average person in some way. In the history of people arguing over how to classify racism, whether it's a mental disorder, a social disorder, a lot of people have said that if you classify extreme racism as a mental disorder, then it sort of could be used as an excuse or a justification for like violent behavior or hateful behavior. But on the other hand, this current research that's happening is kind of illuminating something else really important, which is that if you leave an extremist group, it can be really hard to shake that worldview and those beliefs. So I'm just wondering in your research, like how these two ideas come together and kind of help us address the issue at hand. It's difficult to say, and I'm sure that the researchers I spent time with would be the first to agree that it's really dicey to kind of figure out what the ramifications of this research will be. You could devise treatment options for people if you determined that this was a mental illness. But I think it's still too early to say. I think that those are like promising things to think about, perhaps. But I'd be reluctant to like really go down that path. To wrap this interview up, I want to pose a question back to you that you posed in your piece, which is, do members of hate groups become less extreme in their beliefs when they become more happy or centered? Yeah, I wouldn't say that the this most recent research that I write about in the piece necessarily has an answer to that question or even begins to attempt to answer that question. But I will say that anecdotally, having interviewed many people who are formers and many people who are currently enveloped in this kind of ideology, it does seem to look like people that are currently in it are not necessarily the most satisfied people, I mean, perhaps obviously. And uh, people who have left do oftentimes cite some sort of significant life event, you know, whether it's like falling in love, having a child, as being something that kind of snaps them out of it. So I will say anecdotally there is some evidence, but scientifically not so much yet. Make sure to grab a hard copy of Vice magazine. Or you can read the full article at vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.